the uh, men got a little sneak peek of this on Wednesday. So if you would, let's turn to Luke chapter 18, and we are going to be at uh, verse 24. As you're flipping there, I'll get situated up here. Amen. So Luke 18, 24 through 27, this is Jesus speaking. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So that brings the question, how does a rich man enter into the kingdom of heaven? Let's bow our heads. Lord, we just Lord, come before you tonight, Lord, to, Lord, to preach the word as you've given it to me, Lord. I just pray, Lord, that your anointing will be on me, Lord, to speak, Lord, and to, to articulate, Lord, the words that you've given me, Lord, and also, Lord, for the hearer, Lord, to open up their hearts in understanding, Lord, to hearken, Lord, unto your voice, Lord, so that they could be changed, Lord, by what you have to say, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. How does a rich man enter the kingdom of God? Well, I guess we would have to first start with what does it mean to be rich? Um, I think in the U.S., how we define someone who's rich is anybody that has more stuff than we do they would be considered rich. I never thought that I would be classified as rich, but a couple months ago, that's how I was referred to. Was, well, you're rich. You, yeah. Oh, that's news to me. <laughs> but all right. So I'll just, I'll just glory in that. Um, so really, anybody can be classified as rich. You know? So we have to really kind of understand and try to wrap our heads around what is being rich in the eyes of the Lord. And so that's what I'm going to try to do tonight. Uh, Chris and I have had this discussion. We, we listened to Rush Limbaugh um, before he passed away. This was years ago when I heard this. He was expounding on riches. Now, he was a really wealthy man, but he did not start out that way. I remember back when he first started, he was just doing a radio show in Sacramento, and he was expounding upon how much money he made then. And he, he said this, and it always stuck with me. He said, you have got to make an exorbitant amount of money before you start being considered rich in the sense that you don't live paycheck to paycheck. You've got to be really, and he, so he went through his life on what jobs he had, and he didn't go through how much money he made, but he said, and I thought, and we've all thought this, if I just make this amount, then I'm set, and then we get to that amount, and then it just bumps up. We buy bigger stuff. We buy you know, I get a garage, I fill it full of junk, and I'm going to go buy a house with a bigger garage. I'm going to fill that full of junk. And it's just really something I look forward to. But we always spend what we make. You have got to be really, really, really wealthy before you look at your bank account and just you can't hardly spend what you have. You always will find a way to spend what you have. So I, I began to study some things. Um, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development this is an organization that, that uh, looks into co countries that are similar to ours and their economies and similar work patterns, things like that. And so the study said that in the late 2000s, which is where we're at right now, 
17.3% of the U.S. population lives in poverty, which is higher than most nations, and that the gap between the richest Americans and the poorest is higher than most of these nations. However, America's bottom group is still richer than most of the world. That is, the typical person in the bottom 5% of the American income distribution is still richer than 68% of the world's inhabitants. In fact, India's poorest group corresponds with the fourth, poor, four, fourth poorest percentile worldwide, and its richest is in the 68th percentile. So if you follow me, America's poorest are, as a group, about as rich as the richest people in India. So this is, again, this is all about the same developed nations. So this begs a question. If it is indeed easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, then does one's chances of getting into heaven diminish depending on what country he lives in? So if I just pick up and I'm poor here and I just go over to India, now I'm here, now I'm considered rich, now I'm really not getting into heaven because I'm considered rich. So, of course, that's not true. That's not really what's going on. Uh, in verse 26, it says that those who were, who those hearing said, who is able to be saved then? In fact, in Mark 10, 26, the same setting says they were exceed, exceedingly astonished. In fact, in Matthew's version, it says the same thing, exceedingly astonished. So what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make here is that it was, being rich was not as exclusive to them as we might think, because these men are not rich, but Jesus makes a statement, and they're going, well, then who can be saved? So it makes me think that he's probably not talking about the upper 1% when he's talking about the rich. He's probably talking about something that's a little more common. So when we think of rich, again, we think of how much money we have or less than somebody else. But Jesus uses two different words when it comes to rich here. There's three different versions of this, of this event in, all, in three Gospels. Of course, John doesn't have any, has this story in it. But he uses two words, the word plusios, which means wealth or abundance. But he also words, he uses this word more commonly in, the, in Mark and in Luke, the word krema, which is simply a thing one uses or needs. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, it says that Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hardly they have, how shall they that have riches enter the kingdom of God? They that have things that they need or use. Now that doesn't seem like just rich people. That seems like something else. That seems like People, who, in fact, the word trust there is those who are persuaded by riches, persuaded by the things that they need and trust in. So it's not just about the amount of money that's sitting in your bank account. It could be about how you view that money, how you trust in that money, how you are persuaded by that money. Now, the amount probably doesn't have too much of an influence over how much, like if I have 10,000, am I persuaded more by that? You're really persuaded by money or you're not. No matter what, money, can't, money and things and stuff persuade you no matter how much. You don't suddenly become more greedy because you have more things. I've seen very poor people that were some of the greediest people I've ever seen. 
And I've seen some people who are a lot more well-off than me be some of the most generous people that I've ever met. So it's not, it's not about that, obviously. So in Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 13 through 16, this is, um, I found this interesting because in each, set, each of these settings, when Jesus talks about this, there's the same things that happen. This verse right here, which is people were bringing their little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and placed his hands on them and blessed them. This is the first thing that happens in this setting. The, the disciples have these children, these people are bringing up their children, and the disciples get all offended and get all mad that they're bringing them up. Then it's followed by the rich young ruler. Then it's followed through our text verse, which is about rich people. They all seem to line up, because in every place this is told, it goes that way. The, the children being brought, the rich young ruler, and then about rich people not entering the kingdom of heaven. So I have to look at that. And so what does it really mean to come as a child? Now, obviously, Jesus is pretty upset here because it says the word indignant. It actually means angry. He was mad that the disciples actually would not allow them to come in here. In fact, I was reading um, uh, a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he made this observation about about the setting. He said, perhaps the disciples rebuked those bringing the children as a result of their own exclusivity or they thought themselves to be in a certain position, a high position, and they didn't want anybody interfering with that position. They had a certain status that they felt they had, and they didn't want anybody interfering with that, and Jesus was not happy with that. And so status is no different than wealth. You can be rich in status. And the disciples, I think, thought, hey, I'm following Jesus. I have certain status in this thing. And I don't think other people should come into my place. And, and it began to affect them. So come as, a, come as a child. There are many ways we can interpret this. Some people interpret it as, you know, you have to be innocent when you come to God, things like that. Um, but, when, but in Luke it says, whosoever does not receive the kingdom, of Ki- the kingdom as a child will not enter at all. I find it interesting that this account was given. And after that is talks about riches. So a child, what does a child really possess? What does a child really own? Well, my children think they own a lot, but they really don't. They really have no possessions. They really own nothing. So anything that they have is not theirs. It belongs to somebody else. But their attitudes come because they think it does belong to them. And our attitudes start to raise up when we think something really belongs to us. Amen. Does anybody follow where I'm going here? Okay, let me just give you an example of this. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 through 36, it says, And all the believers were with one heart and one mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's grace 
was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For, for from this time to, from, from time to time, those who owned land and house, houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, who, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, would we consider these people rich? I think so. They had extra. They had other things. I think that they would be considered well-off people. But, they, but it says something really interesting here. That they did not, um, let me just read it here. It says, they had all, all things were common to them. Now, I've, re- I've read in some translations where it says that they have all things in common. But that's not what it means. Because all things in common, that's like communist stuff. That we just, my stuff belongs to you, your stuff belongs to me. And if I don't, you don't have access to my stuff, I'm greedy. And that's not what we're talking about here. It's that these possessions were common to them, meaning they were ordinary. They were nothing that they needed to value. That when they saw a need, they looked at their own things that they had and said, well, there's not, no reason to hold on to this stuff. It's just ordinary. I'm going to go sell it and meet a need. And so it goes back to this child thing where they looked at their stuff and went, do, do I really own this stuff? Is this really mine? Or has God blessed me with some things? And I, and and I have extra, and I'm going to take this and meet some needs. It's the opposite of that parable of the rich man who was so rich, and then he had this bountiful harvest, and he decided, instead of looking at God and blessing God for what God has done for him, he says, I'm just going to build more stuff. I'm going to be build bigger things, and I'm just going to sit back in, in my ease and recline. And this is more the attitude of what Jesus would be considering rich. Both people have stuff. Both sets of people have, are well off. But one looks at their possessions as common. One looks at their possessions as an opportunity to relax. And that would be the attitude that doesn't get you in the kingdom of heaven. Now, again, does that mean that when you have stuff, I have to give it away? Well, when it comes to what I have compared to what another person wants... I do have a claim of what is mine. So just because you have less than me doesn't mean you're entitled to what I have. However, when it comes to the kingdom, when it comes to where Jesus is concerned, what do I really possess? What do I really own? The Jews thought that their temple was so valuable they were willing to put an innocent man on a cross in order to uphold what they had, to hold on to what they had. Forty years later, they are starving to death in that same temple because they are surrounded by a Roman army, and that thing will burn to the ground. So what did they really own? What did they really possess? How rich were they? They really had nothing. They really owned nothing. And so those who think that they have are going to lose, and those who, who lose are going to gain. This is, a, this is a, a foundation scripture of Jesus. Because the rich, when Jesus looks at rich, I believe when Jesus looks at a rich person and says what Jesus would consider a rich person 
is a person who values his stuff so much over the kingdom of God. But a person who can have the same amount of stuff but doesn't look at it as something to be valued or something that he possesses, but something that he's been blessed with and will use that to the kingdom if he's called to do that is not rich. That would be what we called poor in spirit. Amen? Now, I want to go to a different setting here. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, uh, 21 through 24, um, this is Jesus. This is the last night Jesus, Jesus is in the upper room. Um, this is the night before he's crucified. And he's talking to his disciples. And he says, but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table, meaning that the betrayer's hand is sitting on the table. The Son of Man will go, and is as it has been de decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. Then they, being the disciples, began to question among themselves which of them might be who, who would do this, which, which of us is, gonna, is the, the betrayer. But following that, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Isn't that an interesting time to start having a discussion about who's greater? Jesus just said to them that there's a person sitting at this table who's going to betray me, and now they're trying to discuss who's greater. This is a rich man's attitude here. This is a person who thinks they got something, and this is not uncommon. They have this dispute in many different settings in the Scripture. And again, it goes to that status. So now these men aren't well off. They're not poor, but they're trying to gain something here. They're trying to, they have a rich attitude. And that rich attitude is not going to get them anywhere in the kingdom. In fact, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Peter, Peter says to, to Jesus, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will be, there be for us? They're trying to figure out what they're going to gain here. They're trying to see, now, I'm not trying to, like, say be, Peter's a bad guy. Sometimes I've said that. Lord, I'm, I'm doing, I've said a lot of this recently. Lord, I'm doing all this stuff. I, what do I get out of it? Well, what do I need to get out of it? What am I owed? Does God owe me something? God owes me nothing. God has already given me everything. I have nothing that belongs to me. Everything is his. If I believe that, then it is at God's disposal at any time. But this is the issue with a rich man's attitude is when you start believing and hang, trying to hang on to stuff and hang on to things, whether that be a lot of things, whether that be valuable things, it doesn't matter. When you begin to hang on to that, you begin to have a rich man's attitude, a greedy attitude, an attitude that doesn't enter into the kingdom of God. Part of the issue that I had when I was younger was I had a tough time surrendering to the Lord because I'm trying to figure out, well, if I surrender all this, what am I going to get out of it? Well, there's a problem there. The problem is I thought what I had was pretty valuable. So valuable, I didn't want to surrender it for just anything. I wanted to know what I'm surrendering it for. It wasn't until I realized that what I had wasn't that valuable then it made that decision a whole lot easier. Because if my stuff is junk, then I don't, what do I'm holding on to it for? I'm going to get rid of it. 
But if I think it's valuable and I think I'm going to gain something out of it, then I'm going to want to make a fair trade. And anybody who's trying to make a fair trade in the kingdom isn't going to enter it. You're going to have to look at what you have as what it is, zero. You have nothing to give to God. God is not after your stuff. God wasn't after the rich young ruler's stuff. He's not after our stuff. What he's trying to get us to realize is just like a little child, you have no stuff. You own no things. All of it belongs to him. So they have this attitude here. So Jesus steps in and he says this to them. And this is in, uh, this is verse 25 through 30 in the same chapter 22. So Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like, are not to be like that. In, instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I among you, as one who serves, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So what does that mean? That's authority calling themselves benefactors. Well, how the Gentiles work and how it works nowadays is back then you would have a king and in the king's court are a bunch of sycophants and a bunch of courtiers and they're all there trying to curry favor from those who have authority. And they're there to try to get influence, to influence those who have authority and to receive, be benefactors of that authority. We have that going on this today. It's called Washington, D.C., it's called lobbyists. It's called media. Where do you think they all are? They're all in Washington, D.C. because that's where the power is. And because that's where the power is, they're hoping to kind of circulate in there and rub up against the right shoulders and benefact, be benefactors from the authorities there. That's not how the kingdom works. This is the attitude that the disciples had when they're sitting there going, which one of us is the greater? Because they're looking at Jesus, the king, and they're hoping to get some stuff from that. But Jesus looks at him and says, that's not how our kingdom, my kingdom works. You are a servant just as Jesus came down and emptied himself and became a servant. A servant isn't a benefactor. Does that make sense? He's not a benefactor. He is not getting something. He's not owed anything. He's not getting something. A servant doesn't get that stuff. He's not going to trickle down authority from higher authority. That's, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. The expectations of riches or profit should not enter the mind of a child or a servant. When it does, once we start expecting payment, we begin to look at what we have differently. The disciples are expecting a status, expecting a benefit from their following of Christ. And in this case, in Judas's case, perhaps he felt like he was just getting what was due him. Maybe he just thought 30 pieces of silver. Hey, I've worked real hard for Jesus. I'm owed something for all that I've done. And look where that got him. See, a servant... Could, you could be a servant in a rich man's house. You could be a servant in a poor man's house. 
But, and you could have a lot of good things, good things, soft stuff to sit on. I mean, Joseph was in Potiphar's house, and he probably had a lot of cushy couches, a nice soft bed, and a lot because he happened to serve in a rich man's house. But none of it was his. He didn't own any of it. At any time, the master can come in and say, get off the couch, head out in the field, get your work stuff on. You need to go in the field. I need some servants in the field. And does a servant have a right to be resentful? Does a servant have a right to say, well, but wait, I'm a house servant. I I'm, couldn't know. He does what the master wants, whatever that may be. So at one point, he may have possessions, and at one point, he may have nothing. But it's all at the whim of the master, the one he's serving. Amen? So whether servant or child, we are owed nothing from the kingdom of God. A servant and a child need two things. They need protection and provision. That's what they need. That's all they're owed. If you look at what is, look at servants, servitude in the Old Testament, they had, the Lord would lay out certain protections that they had. They, you couldn't beat them up. You couldn't just throw them out. You had to treat them a certain way. But that's all they were owed. Protection and provision. So in Luke chapter 17... This is, this is one of my favorite verses. Actually, it's not, but it's Luke chapter 17, verse 7 through 10. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the, from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat or drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what, was told to, what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. There are many believers out there that believe they're owed something. That God owes them healing. That God owes them riches. That God owes them a certain experience. But a poor person, but a poor person can be rich in the eyes of God, just like a rich person can be poor in the eyes of God, as long as they look at what they have in the right way, as long as they look at themselves and perform their acts as a servant of God. In fact, let me just re- quote some, quote some uh, introductions here. So I read before that these are the people, who, these are the men who are supposed to judge the 12 tribes, tribes of Israel. But this is how they refer to themselves. Paul in Romans says, Paul a slave of Jesus Christ. In Galatians, Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ. Now, some people could look at that and go, I'm an apostle, no man put me here, no man could take me down, God put me up here. I'm the man of the hour, I'm the man of God. But I don't see that that way. I see that as Paul, an apostle, not from anything that I've done, not from anything that I've accomplished, but simply from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ am I here doing this work. That's all. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. In the book of James, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Peter, Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. There is a there is a difference between how we would look at servant. That's why I like this word slave better. Now, we in America have a different view of slavery than what was going on here. That's, it's not the same thing. 
You know, we were going over the men's class. A, a slave, the way we look at it, is something that's called chattel slavery. That is where you are a piece of property. Um, you're no better than an animal. Um, you're no, you know, you're bought and sold the same way. That is not how God ordained slavery in the Old Testament. You were an indentured servant. How you became a slave was you had a debt to pay, and you couldn't pay it. The only way that you could pay it back is if you sold yourself into slavery. And once you were able to work off that debt, you were set free. But the word servant has this connotation of a hired servant that has a set of duties, and when those duties are done, anything extra he or she does would be considered a bonus or profit. That's not a slave. A slave can do can profit, can't profit, because he's in debt. He can do no profit. He can profit the master nothing. All he can do is pay back what the master already paid for him. That's all he, once he gets to where he's doing above what he was indebted to, he gets set free. There's no reason to have him there anymore. A slave is always indebted. They cannot do anything that's profitable. And so it's important for us if we're going to if we're going to really have an understanding of what God expects out of us, we have to have this understanding that we profit God nothing. We don't profit him anything. We are here because we are indebted to him. Only the difference between our debt to him and that the debt of indentured servitude is there's no way we can pay it back. No matter what service we do to God, we're never going to pay it back. Part of the reason is he keeps on blessing us, so we keep on being indebted to, to him. But we have no way of paying him back. We have no way to prop. We are always slaves. And it, and it doesn't matter how, how much money you have or how little money you have. If you have the attitude of a slave or a servant, God doesn't look at you as rich or poor. Because he, what he look because we don't own anything. All of it's his. So I'm not holding on to anything. There's nothing that he doesn't have access to. There's nothing that he can't call into an account. That he can't say, okay, that's enough of that. We're moving on. You were, like Paul said, I abounded and I abased. At some point, God wanted him to abound, and then he said, that's enough. We're going to abase. And Paul's good with it. Why? Because he's a servant. Because he does, Because God owes him nothing. We were, talking, uh, we were talking about the gifts of the Spirit in the young adults class. And one thing that's emphasized whenever, you know, in, throughout all of my studies is that the gifts of God are not gifts for you. They're gifts for him. They're gifts for his body. They don't belong to us. We don't own them. We don't have possession over them. He uses us at one time, and then he won't use, use us another. It's all at his discretion because all we are are servants. That's all we are. So, getting to what Pastor quoted this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 7, for let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, subsisting in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, having become in the likeness of man. Jesus, who had the right to have access to everything that God is and everything that God has, emptied himself in order to take on the role of a slave. We, on the other hand, are slaves, 
And we try to heap everything that we can onto ourselves so we can be kings. That is the opposite of what the Lord wants for our lives. That is what Jesus would consider a rich man, is a person that's looking to heap on, to gain status, to gain a a setting, to gain wealth, to, to build up himself, his own kingdom. But we have no kingdom. That's why a rich man can't enter the kingdom of God. It's not about what he has. It's about who he is. It's about who he is and what he wants to be. Do I want to be someone who has my own little kingdom, which I really don't have because everything belongs to God in the end? Or do I want to look at things in the reality in which they are, which is I have no possession. I have nothing. All I have, God's given. God takes away. God gives back. But I have no resentment towards it because I'm indebted to him. So, it is not enough for one just to empty themselves. That's why there's a lot of poor people out there that aren't entering the kingdom of heaven either. It's you, can't, you don't just empty yourself, but you have to become a servant. They go together. If you don't become a servant and just empty yourself, you're no different than the rich man. Okay? Romans 12, 3. For by the grace of God given to me, I, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves as, with sober judgment in accordance with faith as God has distributed to each of you. Skipping down to verse 9 and 10, and this is my closing verse. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Because it's... It's impossible, to, it's impossible to be a servant unless we have someone to serve. But I serve God. No, not without serving people you don't. You don't serve God without serving people. You could serve people without serving God, but you cannot serve God without serving people. And I'm not just talking about people, random people. I'm talking about the people of God, the people in the kingdom. If I can't serve the people I do see, how am I going to see the, be a servant to the Lord who I don't see? That is how we keep from being rich. No matter how much we have, we still look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I am a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Pastor.